Our Father, the psalmist said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. We have so many things in our lives that vie for our attention. We have so many things from so many different sources that uh, interrupt us, that deter us, that get us off track. We sit down to focus on something and we get pinged, we get alerts, We get another notification about an email. Amazon just dropped off uh, a shock absorber. We, we are constantly interrupted. But you are God. And basically what that psalmist declared is that when he prayed, he had your undivided attention. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. You're not distracted. You're, you're not looking over our shoulder to see what's going on behind us or by what's going on in another part of the world. You are interested in us and you are connected to us. No wonder he says, I love the Lord. Because he hears my voice, my supplications, my, my cries. Therefore, I'll call upon him as long as I live. What a great God you are. You can handle everything. Everything. You're never tired. You're never stressed. You're never fatigued. You're God. You know all things. Even before there is a word on my tongue, you know it all. What a great father you are. You have all power. You have all wisdom. You're good and you do good. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. Cast all your care upon him. Because he cares for you. You not only care, Father, you listen. And you have the power to do what you want to do. No matter what's going on, no matter how deep into trouble we are, no matter how overwhelmed we are, you're there, you know what's best. You'll make a way, and even when you delay, you have reasons th that are for our good. So in the midst of busy lives and <clears throat> juggling many balls and dealing with Many different issues that tend to cumulatively wear us out, we come to you. We want to walk not as unwise, but as wise men. We're living in troubled times. But Jesus said there would be trouble. And then he said, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We believe that. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We trust you tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Years and years ago, a reporter was interviewing 
Ruth Graham and asking about her life and what it was like to raise five children and her husband's all over the world preaching and what's it like when he gets home and just asking her all kinds of questions. And at one point, he said, well, to tell you the truth, all of us would look at you and Mr. Graham, and it might be easy to think for us that you have the perfect marriage. And she said, no, no, not even close. We have struggles and problems and deep differences, just like everyone else, and have our arguments. And, and he said, would you ever consider divorce? She said, divorce? Divorce, no. Murder? <laughs> she had quite the wit. We're looking at the Ten Commandments, and we have been for a number of weeks, and we'll be in this. We won't finish it this fall. We'll keep pushing when we get back together, Lord willing, in uh, January. No reason to rush, no reason we don't have any deadlines, but there is a lot in these Ten Commandments. We made the statement early on that we are living in days where we are witnessing the hyperinflation of evil and wickedness and lawlessness. The word that really stands out is lawlessness. And as you'll see in a nation where there's hyperinflation, and someone sent me an email last week, I believe, that said Venezuela is now up to 10 million percent on inflation, hyperinflation. As hyperinflation prices can double daily, we're watching lawlessness double daily and wickedness and evil. The Ten Commandments, as we've said before, are the gold standard of all ethics, morality, and law. They always have been, they always will. I said they always have been, they have been until recent years. Recently, two school administrators were watching students go through the brand new metal detector that had just been delivered and finally set up and put together. One of the coaches came by and they were just talking about it and they were telling him some of the details about what it could do that the previous metal detector couldn't do and made the statement, um, if you've got a knife, uh, an alarm will go off. If you got a gun, an alarm will go off. If you um, have explosive materials, uh, an alarm will go off. If a student puts the Ten Commandments through there, an alarm will go off. <laughs> now, that's kind of the truth. That really explains what has happened. And you've heard this many, many times, but if you trace things back to the 60s, prayer was taken out of the schools, Bible reading was taken out of the schools, Ten Commandments were taken out of the schools. Any hint of God, any hint of morality, any hint of truth, any hint of right and wrong was removed. And it's interesting to track the social decline right along with God being taken out. How many times have you heard that? But you see, it kind of makes sense. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. We are living in times where we take what is good, we call it bad. We take what is bad and we call it good. When you get to the sixth commandment, it's real brief and it's, it's right to the point. 
In the King James Version, which was kind of the go-to version for the last 400 years, it simply says, thou shall not kill. Um, Tonight, I want to basically make three observations about this commandment. I'll give them to you, and then we'll go back through and work our way through. Three observations about this commandment, thou shalt not kill. First observation will be this. We'll observe what it really means. Secondly, we will observe two ways it doesn't apply. And then thirdly, we'll look at four ways it does apply. So, what does this really mean, thou shalt not kill? Philip Riken gives us a little background out of the Hebrew. He says the sixth commandment is one of the shortest. It's just two words in the original, lo rachah, don't kill. But what kind of killing does the Bible have in mind? The Hebrew language has at least eight different words for killing. The one used here has been chosen carefully. The word rat shah is never used in the legal system or in the military. We'll come back to that in a minute. But there are other Hebrew words for the execution of a death sentence or for the kind of killing a, so- a soldier does in mortal combat. Nor is the word rat shah ever used for hunting and killing animals. So the King James Version, which says, thou shalt not kill, Exodus 20, 13, is somewhat imprecise. What the commandment forbids is not killing, but the unlawful killing of a human being. The English Standard Version, among others, comes closer to the truth when it says, you shall not murder. Murder is what the Sixth Commandment mainly has in mind. The premeditated taking of an innocent life, the deliberate killing of a personal enemy. In summary, what is What the Sixth Commandment forbids is the unjust taking of a legally innocent life. It applies to murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, and negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. Perhaps the best translation is, you shall not kill unlawfully. The the guts of this is, you shall not murder. That's what it really means. All right, let's go to our second observation. Two ways it doesn't apply, and Riken already gave us a hint of what those two areas are. Two ways it doesn't apply. Number one, it doesn't apply to war. Secondly, it doesn't apply to capital punishment. Now let's go back and look at these. It doesn't apply to war. If you want to watch a really good movie, it's kind of old, but it's really good, and it's clean, and it's got a moral to it. In fact, it's got a lot of morals to it. Gary Cooper did a movie called Sergeant York. It's about Sergeant Alvin York, who was the most highly decorated soldier coming out of World War I. He was given the Congressional Medal of Honor he captured 132 German soldiers single-handedly. Now, if you get on the internet, there'll be some who say, well, that really didn't happen. It's a myth. It's a let. He did it. They're right witnesses. The military doesn't hand out the Congressional Medal of Honor just by rumor. It's, it's a confirmed fact. He was born uh, in a log cabin One of many kids, it was his job to get meat for dinner. He shot a lot of turkeys with that that old rifle that he had. Uh, He was in the hills of Tennessee. Uh, The woods, there are a lot of trees. It's not a clear shot. And he would see a turkey. When he'd see that turkey come up, he was waiting. He was primed. 
that turkey had, you know, what, about like that? I don't know, something like that? 150 yards, 200 yards away? His dad didn't give him much ammo. He'd get those suckers on the first shot. So when he captured those 132 German soldiers and you read the account of what happened, uh, all the guys with him except for one were wiped out by these different machine gun nests. And uh, somehow he survived, got back in some trees and started looking for those machine gun nests. The German guys didn't want to hit their guys, so before they would fire, you know, hundreds of rounds, before they do it to make sure they'd pop up, he'd shoot that sucker like a turkey. Over a period of several hours, he got every single one of them. Much bigger target than a turkey head. And then it just went from there and in God's providence, it's quite a story. The reason I bring him up is he was just a young hell-raising kid. Uh, had a mother who prayed for him. And at a certain point in life, the Lord got a grip on him and he gave his life to the Lord. And and then along came the rumors that we were going to war. And he was concerned because he believed the Bible and his King James Bible said, thou shalt not kill. And he got the letter and he was in turmoil. He really struggled because he believed in the authority of the word of God. God says, thou shalt not kill. And he just could not make his way clear to see how he could go over there and go to war. And, and this went on for months and months. Talk to his pastor. Talk with, you know, ask for, a, he could be a conscientious objector. They said, no, this was going back and forth. Finally decided that he would go, met with some officers. Um, it took him a long time to sort this out. If he had had access to a pastor or to a book that could have explained this word, it would have cleared it up like that. But he didn't. Uh, to his credit though, he wrestled and he got his heart right. And finally he was released that yes, he could go and be a soldier with God's approval. So when it says thou shall not murder, this doesn't apply to war because that's different. Our friend Wayne Grudem, who writes these short little books on ethics, I'll tell you, the, the word for Wayne Grudem is thorough. <laughs> thorough. <laughs> because, and, and to his credit, he handles every possible question you could ask about this issue. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. He has an entire section on war. How can we know if a war is a just war? Is it right for a Christian to serve as a soldier? What are the arguments in favor of a pacifist position? Is it right for nations to have nuclear weapons? So we're gonna be here till about 3 a.m. We're not gonna do that, I'll just kinda highlight. His first point is, the Sixth Commandment does not prohibit all participation in war. The Sixth Commandment does not prohibit all participation in war. And he basically says what Riken said, uh, the commandment you shall not murder uses the Hebrew verb we already talked about that refers to the unlawful taking of another human life. We call it murder in ordinary English today. This verb is never used to refer to killing in war. So it is a misapplication of the sixth commandment to use it as an argument against all participation in war. Uh, the commandment is not speaking about killing in war and the original Hebrew readers would have understood that it did not apply to soldiers who kill in combat. In fact, in various times in the Old Testament, God himself commanded the people to go to war. Deuteronomy 20, verse one. 
By the way, the Ten Commandments are restated in Deuteronomy 5. And in Deuteronomy 5, the Lord says, thou shalt not murder, and then in Deuteronomy 20, he sends them to war. God doesn't contradict himself. In the New Testament, soldiers are not condemned for serving in the Roman army, but John the Baptist tells them, be content with your wages. Cornelius, a Roman centurion in charge of 100 soldiers, came to faith, was baptized as a believer in Jesus with no indication that there was anything morally wrong about his occupation. See Acts 10. However, that doesn't answer the question of whether it is a morally right thing for a Christian to participate in a war. And he spends a lot of the chapter dealing with that. His second point is governments are responsible to defend their nations against attacks by other nations. You're going to like this. Governments are responsible to defend their nations against attacks by other nations. So I want you guys to hone in here, okay? You know what I love about the Word of God? It is so relevant. I remember in seminary, I had a prof that said, you don't have to try and make the Bible relevant. It is relevant. It's the Word of God. <laughs> and he was right. So his statement is, governments are responsible to defend their nations against attacks by other nations. He bases this on 1 Peter 2, 1, 14. And I'm going to read what Grudem says. The Apostle Peter says the civil government is intended to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, 1 Peter 2, 14. Paul says that the government is authorized by God to bear the sword, Romans 13, 4, against evildoers so that it can be a terror to bad conduct. Someone's got to keep bad conduct in check. It also carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's in verse 4 of Romans 13. According to Paul, when the ruler uses superior force, even deadly force, against evil, he is God's servant for your good. Isn't that interesting? If a government... Here you go. Here you go. <laughs> I read this yesterday and I started laughing. If a government is commanded by God to protect its citizens from a robber or thief who comes from within a country, then certainly it also has an obligation to protect its citizens against thousands of murderers or thieves who come as an army from somewhere outside of the nation. Let's just pause for a minute. Therefore, a nation has a moral obligation to defend itself against foreign attackers who would come to kill, conquer, and subjugate the people in that nation. In 1559, John Calvin followed the same reasoning when he wrote about the government, the right of the government to wage war. Calvin said, but kings and people must sometimes take up arms. Indeed, if they rightly punish those robbers whose harmful acts have affected only a few, will they allow a whole country to be afflicted and devastated by robberies with impunity? For it makes no difference whether it be a king or the lowest of the common folk who invades a foreign country in which he has no right. All such, all, all such must equally be considered as robbers and punished accordingly. Therefore, princes must be armed to defend by war the dominions entrusted to their self-keeping, if at any time they are under enemy attack. We're under invasion. Would we have permitted something like this 25 years ago, 50 years? Are you, are you kidding? But you see, we left the gold standard. He's got another chapter on self-defense. And he talks about pacifism. I'm not going to talk about pacifism because it, 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 it just doesn't make any sense. Um, Husbands, uh, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Jesus sacrificed for the church. It's the job of a husband to protect his wife. It's the job of a husband to protect his family. Uh, why do we have um, men 
go to war. Well, they're fighting for their wives and kids, they're fighting for their families, they're fighting for everybody. Jesus said no greater love, there was no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what happens in war. That's what happened when, when a police officer dies in the line of fire. That's what happens when a firefighter trying to rescue somebody loses his life, you see? Well, if, if it makes sense to do that for a nation or to do that for some neighbors that you really don't know, but someone's got to care for them and protect them, and would it not make sense? Because you see, you're defending the weak is what you're doing. Would that not make sense in your own home? Why would you defend in war but not defend your own home if there is an invasion of some type? Christians can get weird. Now, you want to be smart and you want to use your head, but your job is to protect. When I was a rookie pastor, Um, so there's a lady in our church, probably 50 or so. Her husband never came. She had some children. Uh, she had a daughter in her 20s who really did never come to church, very rare. Married a guy who was, I don't believe was a believer at all. I met him once. And really, it was once, and I didn't see him again for months and months and months until one morning she showed up at the church office with her mother. She's in her early 20s. And she'd been beat to a pulp all over her face. Had just a, her, her, one eye was closed. Lip, she, they came straight to the church office instead of going to emergency. I never had a class in seminary on what to do in that situation. I never read a Christian book about what to do in that situation. But that was wrong. That guy could have killed her. It was her husband. Uh, so I asked some questions, and uh, yeah, he got upset and just started beating her. I said, okay. I, I said, so where is he now? He's at work. Where does he work? He sells dealers. He, he works at a Ford dealership. I said, okay. Well, why don't you, you, you go, go to the ER, and I, I'm going to go talk to him. Now, I didn't know if you were supposed to do that or not. I didn't know what to do, but that wasn't right. So I went down to the Ford dealership, and he's all spruced up and, you know, talking to some guys. And I walk in, and he sees me, and he does a double take. And I said, hey, I'm Steve Farrar. We met once. He said, yeah. I said, I just saw your wife. I said, we need to talk for a minute, because I want to make a deal with you. Can we go into one of those little offices? Don't you make deals in there? And he said, yeah. So we went in, and uh, I sit down. And I said, listen, there's absolutely no excuse for that. None. But I want to make a deal with you. Here's my card. You got my phone number. Next time you get upset, out of control, mad, angry, whatever, I don't want you hitting her. You call me, and I'll come over, and you can hit me. And I won't hit you back for a while. I didn't say that, I was thinking it. I wasn't sure what to do, but I knew that just couldn't go unchecked. Because he could have killed her. And you know how that stuff goes. If it goes unchecked, it gets worse. It never gets better and better, it gets worse and worse. I, I, I have noticed every guy I've ever talked with who is a wife beater grew up with a wife beater. But Christ can change that. But this guy had no interest in the gospel. He was uh, pretty, uh, not, he was sorry, but not remorseful. You, you know what I'm saying? I said, listen, this happens again. We're pressing charges. 
we're going to do anything we do to throw you in jail. And he nodded, and that was it. What happened was, several years later, he killed himself. There was such rage, there was such stuff that was completely out of control. Someone has got to defend the innocent or the weak. Uh, Back to our point about this sixth commandment. Two ways it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to war. For reasons we've just said. Here's the second way. It doesn't apply to capital punishment. This is uh, this, this is kind of heavy stuff, isn't it? And you know, uh, what's interesting about this commandment is that everybody pretty much, most Americans pretty much across the board would agree, oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's terrible to... It's wrong to murder. It's, it's just wrong. Yet we are a murderous society. We've got blood all over our hands. We're dripping. We're swimming in blood. You see? I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, this commandment does not apply to war. It doesn't apply to capital punishment. I'm going to call on Grudem one more time here. Once again, he was talking about the meaning of the commandment. This verb is used in the Old Testament to refer to the unlawful taking of a human life, what we call murder. Uh, But this word, this word is not the ordinary word for judicial execution, and it is never used to refer to as we've seen, to killing in war. Therefore, the Sixth Commandment should not be used as an argument against capital punishment. That's not the sense in which the original readers would have understood it. All right, here we go. Although this commandment is part of the Mosaic Covenant, the law God made with Moses, it is restated several times in the New Testament. Romans 1.29, 13.9, First Timothy 1.9, James 2.11. There's a lot more. We'll just leave it there. The New Testament authors frequently affirm the continuing moral validity of this commandment in the new covenant age. Here's the reasoning. God is the creator and sustainer of life, and human beings are the pinnacle of his creation, for only human beings are said to be created in the image of God. Therefore, God absolutely forbids human beings to murder one another. The key passage is Genesis 9 Verses 5 to 6. Why don't you flip over there, if you would. Uh, this also raises all kinds of questions that we can't get into tonight, but that Grudem anticipates and answers. We're just kind of getting the, the guts of it here. So in Genesis 9, beginning with verse 5, God says, surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it and require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. A couple paragraphs from Grudem. The context of this. In the early history of the human race, God brought a massive flood on the earth, destroying all human beings except the eight who were rescued in the ark. Noah's three wife, his three sons, and their uh, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. That's Genesis six to nine. When the flood ended, Noah and his family came out of the ark and started human society all over again. At that point, God gave them instructions regarding the life they were about to begin. Among those instructions was the following passage, which we just read. It provides the foundation for human government. And for your life with blood, I will require a reckoning, and every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. This commandment from God says that when someone murders another person, the murderer himself should be put to death. The execution of a murderer was not going to be carried out directly by God, but by a human agent. 
By man shall his blood be shed. Yet this was not to be seen as human vengeance, but as carrying out God's own requirement of justice. God explains what he means when he says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. The reason God gives this is the immense value of human life, which has become cheap in America. For God made man in his own image. To be in the image of God is the highest status and privilege of all creation. Only human beings share in it. To be in God's image means that human beings are more like God than anything else on the earth. And it also means that they are God's representatives in this world, for they are like him and can thus best represent him. Therefore, to murder a human being is to murder someone who is more like God than any other creature on the earth. The murder of a Another human being is therefore a kind of attack against God himself, for it is an attack against his representative on the earth, an attack against the image of himself that he has left on the earth. In order to give just punishment for such a serious crime, God decrees that the murderer will pay the ultimate price. He will forfeit his own life. The punishment will fit the crime. He's got a lot more in here. We could go on to Romans 13, 1 through 7. Referred to it, in a sense, earlier, where the government is set up by God, and the government is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrong door. Um, it does not bear the sword in vain. There is to be retribution for, um, for breaking of laws and the taking of human life at murder. There is to be a particular punishment ordained by God, carried out by civil government. Now, that's, have there been breaches? Have there been misuses? Of course, and Grudem goes in all that. We don't have the time to do that. He does ask this question, though. And this always comes up. The question is, is the death penalty a deterrent to murder? Uh, he has a lot of statistics and studies. I'll just get the summary here. Some studies have shown that for each murderer executed, as many as 14 to 18 additional murders are deterred. Uh, David Mulhausen, a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, reports in a one study done in 2009, researchers found that adopting state laws making defendants in child murder cases subject to the death penalty resulted in an almost 20% reduction in rates of these crimes. He's got a lot more here. One gentleman, uh, well, two death, uh, death opponent death penalty opponents. Cass Sunstein of the University of Chicago and Adrian Bermule of Harvard University write this. Now they're against the death penalty. Capital punishment may well save lives. They add, those who object to capital punishment and who do so in the name of protecting life must come to terms with the possibility that the failure to inflict capital punishment will fail to protect life. And then Dennis Prager, he's got a footnote on Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager offers an interesting thought experiment by the late sociologist Ernest van der Haag. Imagine what would happen if just one state passed a law that capital punishment would be carried out only for murders committed on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Do you think that murders in that state would decrease on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays? Of course they would. Prager writes, the notion that parking tickets deter illegal parking, but that the death penalty does not deter murder is truly irrational. It shows what happens when people put ideology over common sense. But you see, we've left the gold standard. So Christian men are salt and light. It doesn't take a lot of salt to influence. It doesn't take a lot of light to suddenly see clearly. 
we are God's ambassadors. We are his men. We are his leaders. We are his husbands. We are his fathers. And the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we treat our wives, the way we love our children and discipline and all that stuff makes a difference in a culture of increasing and growing lawlessness. You're significant. What you're doing is important. Francis Schaeffer said, there are no little people and there are no little places. You have your sphere of influence, and I do. We can't do it all, but within that sphere, God's using us. So we stay the course. And we follow him. And we put his word in our hearts and in our lives. So that we don't become like the culture around us. Third point, third observation. There are four ways that this commandment, thou shalt not murder, does apply. All right? Number one, it applies to hatred in my heart. Let's go to Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, Jesus takes this on. I said earlier, and one of the commentators I read said, if there's anything that a lot of Americans would agree on, no, yeah, it's wrong to murder, you know. And this is one we kind of feel like some of the other commandments kind of make us, you know, uncomfortable, but, well, I've never murdered anybody. But see, what Jesus does, he takes it right to the heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit a murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. On this passage, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, man cannot even keep the Ten Commandments. And yet he talks glibly about keeping the Sermon on the Mount and of imitating Christ. If a man cannot keep the Ten Commandments as they understand them, what, have, what hope have they of keeping the Ten Commandments as they have been interpreted by the Lord Jesus Christ? That was the whole trouble with the Pharisees right here, who so hated him and who finally crucified him. They thought they were keeping the Ten Commandments and the moral law. Our Lord convinced them and convicted them of the fact that they were not keeping the law. They claimed they had never committed murder. Wait a minute, said our Lord. Have you ever said to your brother, thou fool? If you have, you're guilty of murder. Murder does not only mean actually physically killing a man, it means the bitterness and hatred in your heart. You see, as our Lord comes to interpret his law, he shows that an evil desire is as damnable as a deed. A thought and an imagination are as reprehensible in the sight of God as the act committed. There are four or, four not, four or five names of Christian men that when, they're, when I think about them, my first thought is not good because of some experiences. What I try to do as soon as that comes into my mind is pray for them. I pray that God would bring favor upon them, that they would be growing in the word, that they would be walking with him, I immediately pray that God would bless them. Why? I'm trying to stop murder in my heart. That's it. That's what I'm trying to do. You read Psalm 139, one of the greatest of the Psalms, all about the greatness of God and how God formed you and fashioned you in the wound. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he starts talking about the wicked and the enemies of God. He says, I hate them with, I loathe them. And he just takes off. And then he catches himself and says, search me, 
Oh God, search me and know me and try my heart and see if there be any anxious way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. He's got to get a grip on his heart. Because that stuff has got to be checked. It's got to be restrained. Secondly, second way it does apply. It applies to all cruelty or violence that could weaken or shorten someone's life. This is from G.I. Packer. Thou shalt not murder applies to all cruelty or violence that could weaken or shorten someone's life. Think euthanasia. The Hippocratic Oath, doctors used to say, they committed to sacrificing and serving and doing everything they could do to preserve life. Philip Ryken says, you better be careful if a guy's got a stethoscope and a clipboard and a white coat. Because the whole medical community is turned. Now, there are Daniels in there. But as a whole, if you're a Daniel, you're going to be persecuted. And you see it all. We see it. You know about it. Which leads me to the next one, number three. Uh, this commandment does apply to abortion. Uh, life begins at conception. David in Psalm 139 talks about being in the womb and how God formed and fashioned him. The fourth one is this. Four ways this commandment applies. It applies to a believer who commits suicide. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but over the last seven, eight years, I've seen somewhere between, oh, a rough count, seven, eight, maybe nine Christian men who apparently really had a relationship with the Lord, walked with him, had a track record, were solid in their faith and church and their family, that just, it was stunning. They, they took their own lives. They committed self-murder. Now, I want, I want to just say this real quickly. What happens when a true believer takes his own life. That's a sin. But it's a sin covered by the blood of Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, Jesus paid it all. He said, to telestai, it is finished. It can mean paid in full. He paid for our sins, past, present, and future. Is that a sin? Oh, yeah, it's a great sin. But if someone trusted in Christ was regenerated by the Holy Spirit and they're a believer, that sin is forgiven and they're in heaven. Why, how could that happen to a Christian man? And every time I talk with a family, they're just in shock. They're stunned. They, there are always some ingredients. Number one, there's always satanic oppression because he is a liar and he is a murderer from the beginning. There is also, um, that is mixed in with despair where a man feels that there is absolutely no way out. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says, you remember our affliction in Asia when we were excessively burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. Paul was so worn out. That word despair means um, no passage, no way, no exit, no possible way, to, way out of these circumstances. But then Paul goes on and says, but these things have occurred so that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You see, what happens is a, a, a man gets so locked up in despair that he forgets his God is the God who raises the dead. And then in Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? It says this three different times in 42 and 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down within me? Hope in God. See, he had the, he's despairing. Why are, you cast, why are you in despair, O my soul? There's no way. I don't see any exit. When you see no exit and you're overwhelmed 
And it also says in Psalm 42, all your waves have rolled over me. It's just one thing after another after, and the guy's drowning, he's overwhelmed. Why are you in despair? There's no way out, oh my soul, and why are you cast down within me? Hope in God, watch this, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. They forget that God can make a way where there is no way. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's happened, he can make a way of escape and deliverance. But that is forgotten in the combination of oppression and everything else. All this to say, everyone here looks fine. There may be a guy here that is absolutely, you're at your wits end and it's so bad, you're actually thinking about this. I was talking to a couple guys after the noon study. One of the guys there, his father, fit this description, took his own life. And he was with his father-in-law. And what they said to me, there's perhaps one other aspect that enters into this, it did in our situation. He let pride get a hold of him and he wouldn't reach out. He wouldn't admit he needed help. And we tried. If you're hurting that bad, you cannot live the Christian life by yourself. Galatians 6, 2, bear one of those burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. The enemy wants to isolate you and he wants to kill you and he wants to kill your family. Don't be so proud that you can't reach out and say, I need help. The two are stronger than one. A cord of three stands is not easily broken. Let Jesus win the victory. Let him raise you up. Let's pray. So, Father, we call on you. Thank you that you save us from all sin, all the anger, all the rage in our hearts. What grace, what mercy, what a great God. You love life. You created life. You made life. You sustain our life. Through Jesus, we have eternal life. And in his name we pray, amen.